Hey, I'm Zanzi. Welcome to Farmer's Inside Track, episode 227. I'm your host, Donumdu. Now, on this podcast, we've had numerous discussions about climate change and how rising temperatures and extreme weather conditions are increasingly affecting food security. In this edition, our experts joining us highlight what climate adaptability is and an explanation on what we mean when we refer to climate-adaptable crops and the benefits of adopting more climate-smart agricultural practices. Now that's a mouthful, but I know that you'll enjoy today's discussion. Over to you, Food from Zanzi commercial journalist Octavia Spandil, and thanks for joining us. Sikoli Semlinga, soil scientist and senior analyst in sustainable agriculture for Green Cape, Tabile Nkonjana, agricultural economist at the National Agricultural Marketing Council, Diana Mgomezulu, an MSc plant breeding student at the University of the Free State, and Dr. Zaid Bello, a researcher at the Agricultural Research Council. I just love having so many experts in one space. Thank you, Dawn. So, Tolisa, let's kick it off with the first question. What is climate-adaptable crops? I think it's also very important to just highlight what climate adaptability is before we can dive deeper into just understanding what we mean by climate adaptable crops. And obviously, the simplest Google definition to that is that climate adaptability refers to adjustments in ecological, social or economical systems in response to climate change. So it then refers to all of these technologies that we're wanting to adopt as a means to adopt to climate change. And it involves quite a lot of things which include both changing what is causing the problem by reducing maybe your greenhouse emissions like your carbon dioxide or changing the behavior to adapt to new climatic conditions. So in the case of climate adaptable crops, it's crops that are specifically looking into basically it's crops that are able to adapt well under a very stressful or a stressed climatic condition. So we can mention a few, if you're talking about climate adaptable crops, we're looking at sorghum, we're looking at soybeans, we're looking at and basically just trying to create resilient systems through which we can still be able to have some productivity and at the same time taking care of the fact that the crops are being subjected to a very, very highly stressed environment and basically they have to thrive in that space. So it's been in simplest forms, meaning that adjusting and adapting to or maybe looking at research that focuses particularly on the different types of crops that can thrive well under those conditions. Thank you so much. Perhaps you can stay with me on the second question as well. What is climate smart agriculture? So when we talk about climate smart agriculture, we're looking at an integrated approach, which is meant to manage or improve the productivity of croplands, livestock, forests and sometimes fisheries. So it basically looks at all the nexus that exists in food, energy, and water, and has got aims, which is increased productivity, enhanced resilience, and again, reduced emissions. So the whole aim or the whole goal of these technologies is to basically meet our NDCs in the agriculture space and as well as look at sustainable development goals, which is for climate action, poverty eradication and hunger. So there's quite a lot of interesting work that's been done. So upon this whole stressful topic around climate change, DAF, which is the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, they did have like a draft climate change adaptability and mitigation plan, which speaks to all of these adoption technologies in response to the harsh effects of climate change, especially in the context of farmers. And then they've also created policies around 
all of this conversation that we're having today? Like, what are the best policies that can be implemented in order to support climate smart agriculture? And just at the top of my head, I'm reminded that there's actually also a lot of money that has been rolled out to also support research and development work that's wanting to support this transition. It's amazing work that has been done by the Agricultural Research Research Council, as an example. And the CSIR has also done amazing work in the space to really look at all of these different technologies that farmers can adopt, which speak to climate smart agriculture. So a lot of it now, again, like I mentioned, it really resides or focuses mainly on the food, energy and water nexus. So any technology that improves water use efficiency whilst minimizing energy costs while improving productivity qualifies as a climate smart agriculture. So in the energy aspect of it, a lot of conversations now have been driven towards your more renewable energy, a lot more moving away from your coal dependence and your diesel powered irrigation systems, as an example, just to hone into renewable energy solutions and fitting them into the agriculture space. And there's really been interesting technologies that are coming up online in the space. We're looking at solar powered irrigation systems and other farmers like bigger farmers are looking at using solar for their pack houses and others are just deciding to go completely off grid. And this is all in response to what qualifies this climate smart agriculture that everybody wants to tap into. And the nicest thing is there's also a lot of policies that support this. I mean, you know that we do a lot of the times adopt technologies or policies from U.S. So upon their draft bill as well, that's when we decided to take on this. And I mean, the nicest thing is that the transition also speaks to your regenerative agricultural production methods which could allow you to tap into different revenue streams, which is what is becoming a lot more attractive now in the space where people are wanting to get into it, not only for the environmental aspects of it, but also for the economic benefit that it comes with. And the real benefit right now is people are realizing that once you get into climate smart agriculture practices, you cut down a lot on your fertilizer inputs, as an example. You get to save a lot more on your water. So a lot of people are now wanting to tap into that because they're realizing that, wait a minute, you can actually save on this as your input costs, which then unlocks a new, completely different stream. Now you can tap into your carbon credits, which is obviously supported by the crypto protocol, which identifies policies and measures which can be used to adopt all of those technologies that we're talking about. Tobile, I would like to ask you to share some of your comments regarding smart agriculture and also maybe how you've seen a change in practice and where that is going now. So I think Sikalisa touched on a number of key issues around this topic. But for me, I'm just going to try to be more focused on the issue of production and also how does that mean in terms of the farmers and also the traders and everything else going into the global space. At the moment, there's just a lot that is happening. And then one would sense a bit of contradiction uh, from the views and, and on all that. For an example, if one is to at least can recall like now what is happening in Africa, we're going to have an important event that is going to be held in Ghana mid this year. And that talks to the issue of fertilizer use and application in food production in general across the continent. Of Africa, and that's something that has been, you know, there have been goals that have been set during the declaration in, in Nigeria some time ago as to how much fertilizer should be used 
in production of food and all that. And if one looks into it at a broader picture, is that Africa is way below compared to what is happening. If one is to look into the to the world by region, Africa is the second least user or applier of fertilizer in food production, which is one of the reasons why it has recorded a list for lower yields in terms of hectare compared to other areas. But of course, this varies across, across countries, because countries like South Africa at least are above the proposed amount, and some have even doubled if one looks into the countries like Seychelles. Those are doing pretty well in that. But now, if you are to go to Europe, for example, now there is an issue happening there, a proposition that farmers should use between 15 to 30% lesser nitrogen in their food production. And uh, there's a huge strike that has been happening there. As of today, if one is following what is happening in Euro News, every day you will find that there's something happening between France, Netherlands, and Germany. The countries that are already ahead of trying to, to adapt to climate issues, they are developing, or at least they are diverting to an entirely different kind of an approach. But those that are still very low or below the standard production of, of, of food in general, they are trying to catch up. So there are this contradiction. And of course, now if one brings in the market into all this, there's just a lot that is happening. As close already again said that if one is to export, for example, into EU, there are just a lot that is happening. The policies that are being put, in fact, is working with countries across the world where they are approaching them in terms of how the food that they are to buy should be produced. And, you know, uh, the practices in general that is, are you using a renewable energy to, to produce that food? If one can look into it, can be a sort of a technically barrier to trade. For example, take the issue of, of citrus here in South Africa now. We have citrus that you don't know what they're going to do with it. Around 36% of our citrus goes to Europe. There's still a, a huge question around EU requires certain standards around that. And that's something that you cannot be able to do given the implications and finances and, 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 um, and of course, the, the cost, which is uh, one thing that cannot happen over two months. It's going to take time, you see. So also, if one is to go to other regions, Brazil, for example, is a huge producer of a number of key commodities. And soybean is one of the key commodities that they do very well in. But because of climate change, it is estimated that a lot of, that, of their harvest or at least their yields are going to be reduced specifically because of climate-related issues. The same thing is applied. It's been said about coffee production in other key countries like your North, South America, Colombia, and all that. So there is a serious issue. But now, of course, there are propositions in terms of what farmers should be doing, you know, in terms of bringing in integrated systems, all this. But of course, it's still a new thing. A research is being done. But for farmers that are going to easily tap into that or at least adapt to the current production systems, they're going to be able to do very well. Something that applies in for poultry, for example, if you're to look into the market in America, at the moment there's a huge or at least there's an increasing trend, particularly for poultry production there. Those folks, they're looking into a range kind of a thing and also which has minimally production, at least use of GMOs and all those kind of things. So there's just a lot that is happening, but I mean, it's still a new topic, but I think for farmers that are interested in specific production or at least commodities, it's going to be important that they keep up into what is happening in global and of course the requirements that comes for certain products to get into certain countries, as it is the case, for example, in the in South Africa for citrus. It may not necessarily be climate related, but it's still something that farmers need to adhere to.
to be able to get into certain markets. Diana, do you think enough farmers are thinking about using climate adaptable methods? So based on what crop a farmer can use as a startup, usually the corporates have information. They will stock up on crops that are more suitable for that specific region. Back home in Pongola, I would assume that the corporates in Pongola would sell stuff that are suitable for that environment. And if not, seeds usually come with seed information and farmers can get some information based on the seed information provided on whether it's suitable for their type of land or not. So there is ways to get information and they can also participate in workshops provided by the government or the seed companies. They have access to extension offices in their area. If they don't know of any, they can go to the agricultural department of each place to get information there. Because I know the Department of Agriculture is really trying to help farmers, even if it's just startup farmers. Because back in my hometown, some people from rural areas, they don't even need to buy seeds. The government provides. You just need to know when seeds are available. When is the Department of Agriculture giving out seeds? Sometimes they even give out equipment as startups to help you and also see you through the process as you try to familiarize yourself with agriculture and growing your own crops. And finally, Dr. Bello, can you share some of the policies that are made in South Africa as well as some of the benefits regarding climate change adaptability? You remember the responsibility has to do with the food security for the police. So in terms of the food security, we have to increase the production. And this production has to do with the farmers. So there are lots of policy that actually going on in terms of educating the small-scale farmers uh, by the government through the extension officers. So it is not only educating them. We have to really see how much are they producing? Are they really contributing to the food security in the country? Not only that, what is their practices? What do they engage? Do they even know about climate change? Do they know about the climate change effect on their production? So all this thing has to do with lots of policy from the Department of Agriculture. And they are really sponsoring research in terms of this, trying to develop small-scale farmers. I think for commercial farmers too, there are a lot of stakeholders that also assisting the farmers in terms of not only the education, but it has to do with the financial support in terms of the loans, the advisory services. So government is really trying to help through their policy implementation, through the researchers, just like ARC, they sponsor some of the work done by the institutes and also even at the university levels. Because look at some, uh, what do you call it, uh, WRC, uh, Water Research Commission of South Africa, they are actually working under the umbrella of trying to ensure that the effect of water scarcity is not really uh, to manage the water scarcity in terms of the food production through their cultural produce. So government is really trying. There are lots of policy going on there. I believe there are still more work to be done. There are still more niche to actually be filled in terms of the, this research considering the policy that is going on now. Thanks, Octavia. And thanks for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track. Sikoli Senglinga, Tabilen Konjana, Diana Ngomezulu, and Dr. Zaid Bello. And that's a wrap from Ito Numdu, Octavia Spandil, our technical producer Megan van der Fendt, and the rest of the hashtag Team Food for Mzanzi, 
Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food for Mzanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.